Welcome to the first ever QQI National Academic Integrity Network podcast. My name is Ashley Wiest, and as well as being the Head of Quality Enhancement at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, University of Medicine and Health Sciences, I'm privileged to sit on the NANE, or National Academic Integrity Network, Steering Committee. The National Academic Integrity Network is a peer-driven network focused on actively supporting higher education institutions to effectively engage with the challenges presented by academic misconduct, to embed a culture of academic integrity amongst providers, and to develop national resources and tools to address the challenges presented by academic misconduct. The network comprises membership from all public higher education institutions, universities and institutes of technology, as well as private independent providers, students and student representatives from the Union of Students in Ireland. For this first podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Kane Murdoch from the University of New South Wales, UNSW, in Sydney, Australia. Kane leads the Student Conduct and Integrity Unit at UNSW, one of Australia's top universities in innovation, research and teaching. He has over 13 years experience managing student academic integrity matters in the university's Faculty of Engineering and then as a senior advisor at the newly formed Conduct and Integrity Office. In 2019, Kane jointly won the UNSW Vice-Chancellor's Award for Innovation in Detecting Contract Cheating and Recognition for Initiating Courageous Conversations, an educational and integrity-driven approach to managing serious student misconduct. Kane has presented at conferences for the International Centre for Academic Integrity in 2019 and 2020. And last year, Kane was the keynote speaker at the inaugural Australian Academic Integrity Network Forum. Currently, Kane is developing systems for flagging contract cheating behaviours in online environments. He is also co-leading a multi-university team engaged by Australia's Tertiary Education Quality and Standards Agency to develop contract cheating detection training for higher education and integrity staff. Kane, welcome to the podcast and welcome to Ireland. Good morning, Ashley. Thanks for having me. We're delighted to have had you with us over this past week. And over this week, you've had seven workshops with senior leaders, student leaders and staff to support higher education institutions to explore, consider and manage the investigation of academic misconduct. And at these workshops, you've now engaged with over 100 staff from 30 higher education institutions. So I'm sure you have a real sense of the common issues across the sector in Ireland. Could you share with us what you think those common concerns are? I think, uh, I think Australia's experience we had a, a big scandal regarding contract cheating and it kind of fast forwarded our efforts in this and to Ireland's great benefit, they haven't yet, but they've seen sense through the QQI and through NAME to see the value in being proactive in this space. And so I think it's really impressive that, you know, literally that many people and that many sessions have been able to go ahead and pull people from around the country all to come and contribute and hear what I have to say as well. Um, some of the issues, um, I think, just like universities all around the world, they're very tradition bound. And I think that sometimes restricts our kind of realm of action. I think if we can start thinking a little more future focused, that would to be, every, to, be to everyone's benefit. And, and I think it's really interesting that you, you started by talking about the scandal that happened in Australia. Mm. And I think 
that woke up a lot of people to what, to what was potentially happening. But because we haven't had a scandal in Ireland, there, there probably is a view that this isn't a problem and that this is, isn't happening. So, so do we think it's happening? Absolutely. Absolutely, we think it's happening. Even from looking at the market for pro providing contract cheating services, it's a very well populated market in Ireland, clearly. There's hundreds of sites that are targeting Irish students or students in Ireland, generally. And the other thing that I kind of note is that our cultures, our academic cultures, our, you know, we all speak English, um, our having international students as part of the mix there, um, there's a lot of commonalities and so absolutely I think it's happening, yes. And and I suppose you talked there a little bit about the, the, the challenges of a very traditional academic uh, mindset and you know that has great benefits and, and you and I did a little kind of mini history tour this morning and, and we were looking at I suppose some of those lovely parts about academic traditions but um, you know, I suppose one of the challenges then is, is how do you move that mindset and how do you adjust it to uh, account for the fact that the world of academic misconduct has moved by and large from a world where plagiarism is the biggest concern mm. to something where technology is driving a lot of these issues. Yeah, uh, this stuff is very mediated by the internet, you know, and I think, and just as like COVID sh shifted us to a very like, it, the internet was the media through which we, did nearly all of our teaching and learning. And I don't think there's any going back from that. You know, it may not go leaping into the future right now, but I think that's a kind of phase shift and we need to accept that new reality, I think. Um, the other thing about technology is that it made a lot of this stuff easier. And so that is for the provision. So a student can just go to a website and put in a question, make a payment and get an essay, for example. The internet is the medium through which that happens. But also like we can use technology as universities to actually detect it. We just haven't, you know, until more recently put two and two together. You know, we've been a bit stuck. And so I think these are all steps forward to, to embrace that reality that we do have tools that we can use. We're sitting on lots of data, you know, students in their, their trajectory through our universities. They, it generates a lot of data. And so we can use that data to, um, to investigate and to flag concerning behaviors. And, and I think that's a really interesting uh, point because I suppose one of the things that we've been talking about over the over the workshops is is the fact that university systems are, in many ways haven't changed massively in terms of how we deal with students where there are issues arising and actually this does require a new approach and and actually sometimes it can be very difficult to to make that change and and to I suppose put those systems in place. So, so what would you say to Irish universities and to other higher education institutions about, you know, the need to adjust and the need to move? Yeah, I think that, you know, universities engage in a lot of kind of learning analytics. They want to understand how students learn and where, what, what things prevent them learning and how we can adapt and help those students learn. And I think it's a very similar, it's a good prism to look at the problem because when a student isn't learning, you know, they're, they're just naturally not reaching a passing grade, for example. We think there's reasons why that is. 
But similarly, when a student is cheating, there's reasons why that is too, and they're just as visible. We're just not asking the questions of the data. So it suggests that you know some of the things we already do can effectively be repurposed. And, and I think that's a that linking to that, the, the question of resourcing has come up, I, th mm. I think, a lot this week as well. Mm. And we all know, I'm sure Australia, I'd imagine, is similar. Resources are constraints. People mm. are always trying to figure out where to put them. There's pressures to put resources in particular areas. I suppose, how would you advise universities around resourcing these yeah. kinds of issues? I think that a lot of, from what I've heard, a lot of Irish universities um, rely very heavily on academics to do a lot of the, de the detection work and they have so many different pressures like there's pressure to teach well and to assess well and to produce research and to provide service to the university and I'm not entirely convinced that it's the best use of their time you know when you add up the actual cost of that you know if you lose academics through burnout for example you know, that's a cost to the university or, you know, if they don't research as much or as higher quality because they're doing other things which the university requires them to do, that's a cost to the university. You know, it's a cost on a whole bunch of different levels. And when you have like a small unit like mine, you know, um, I think it, it's a more effective way of spending that money. We're just refusing to properly account for costs sometimes. You know, when you have each academic in the university being somewhat responsible for academic integrity, and they are somewhat, but I think it's possibly a higher reliance um, on these academics. I think we're really kind of asking too much of them and not spending that money well. And do you think that sometimes as a result of that, some academics don't investigate things where they have suspicions? From what I've heard, it's quite a laborious process, which is quite a distinction from our process, which is pretty straightforward. Um, I think that it's an unappealing thing for them when they find something and they might have to be grilled by a barrister mm -hmm. as a result. So we've introduced a kind of adversarial or litigious um, element to the process and it's a, there's a lot of disincentives for academics to do that, to, to raise a academic misconduct issue. So when you're disincentivizing your major investigators, um, you're certainly not progressing in a healthy way. And one of the things you've been talking to participants about this week has been the courageous conversations approach that you have taken yes. in UNSW yes. uh, as a kind of a, a remedy almost to that litigious, uh, I suppose, approach. So, so maybe just to tell people a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah. So courageous conversations really is an approach which seeks to avoid a lot of the kind of negative aspects of what is a very, very challenging time for a student. You know, um, it's not an appealing thing to have someone point out mistakes. Yes. And that's how we think of them in our language. You know, we don't use um, criminological um, terminology. We don't use, um, at least at the courageous conversation stage, we don't use a word like allegations. We do not use a word like guilt. Okay. You know, and so I think when we approach students 
in that mindset saying, look, we'd like to raise some concerns about your academic behaviour and go through a much more you know, collaborative process rather than an adversarial process. I think students, and that's been our experience, that students respond very positively on the whole. You know, like there's a whole range of different people out there and some people might respond in a very, um, they might be outraged yes. that this is, and that's, that's okay. You know, people have natural responses and, but fundamentally our approach is a very student positive approach and we want to lead them back to a place of integrity in themselves. You know, we're not here to be judge, jury and executioner, but rather we're interested in their learning and their success as students. And what do you think the impact of that approach has been? I think there's a number of them. Um, as I said, from the student perspective, I think the process is so much um, less emotionally taxing. It's a lot quicker. It's a lot quicker. Um, roughly just under 66%. So two thirds reduction basically in the amount of time it takes for a case to complete. It's less emotionally burdensome for staff who have to deal with it. Um, my team are generally pretty happy, as am I, mm. because we get to see students, even in a difficult situation, being their best self. Okay. You know, and I think that's one of the things that universities could do better on is really focusing on helping students be their best self and seeing them as part of our community and working with us rather than somehow opposed to us. And, and that links really nicely, I suppose, to my question about the session that you had with our students. So I, I know mm. you met some students during the week and, and, and I think that students for, for the National Academic Integrity Network have really been so integral to our role. They're so involved and they put us on the right path um, uh, regularly when, when we need a little bit of a steer because they are, are down and living in this world that I suppose to us is abstract um, by and large. And I suppose that piece around student engagement, how do you see students uh, getting involved in, for example, an, an evolution within higher education institutions around how they manage academic misconduct issues? Um, I think that, you know, if we, again, when you have that distance between the university, this, this monolith, and it, you know, it can be in their, in their minds, it can be quite monolithic, you know, these giant buildings and this grandness and these, you know, professors. But I think if we can be real humans with them, you know, and talk to them as real humans and see them as people who genuinely have insight that we actually lack, yeah. you know, that's a key thing that, as you said, when they are able to provide steering to us, so really genuinely consulting and speaking with them and engaging with them, you know, you get a lot more out of them. Absolutely. And I don't mean that in a mercenary sense, I mean like they get to really contribute and feel like they're part of the whole. And, and I suppose we've spoken about creating a very supportive culture mm. for students, but you know, and we've touched on the fact that there can be kind of challenges for academic staff in, I suppose, both detecting and then pursuing cases mm. of academic misconduct. 
And, and sometimes that comes from a lack of confidence or it comes from, you know, that, that piece around, you know, not wanting to get involved in a, an adversarial process. So how do we make it a, a safer and more supportive place for yeah. academic staff as well? Yeah, as I said, like the way our um, kind of process is structured is that an academic might, you know, we call it like having kind of spidey senses. Something is <laughs> something in their academic brain is tingling about this piece of work or about this student. And I think it's about, in a sense, getting them to keep their academic hat on. So we want their best academic advice, you know. So that create that generates a referral to us, mm-hmm. and so they get to have that real academic input without being in a place of discomfort. You know, we're asking them to just stay where they live. Yes. Without limiting their role. There's um, some, many of the QQI would know Kath Ellis, who's a close Absolutely. collaborator and friend of mine. You know, her role in the academic integrity space is much bigger than an ordinary, you know, air quotes, ordinary academic. academic yeah. So it doesn't limit what they can do, but it says, you know, if going into a, you know, a misconduct process, and frankly, a lot of academics don't really like the idea of reporting. You know, they feel like that that wasn't the job that I signed up for. Completely. You know, I wanted to teach and learn and and be able to generate this thing with my students and feel some kind of communion with them and reporting them for misconduct feels like it's well outside that. But when you can start talking about a culture of academic integrity and that it's important that universities be able to stand behind their students from you know all the way through but especially at the time we award a degree and we can know having a a greater sense of surety that this student is exactly the person that we tell society they are you know I think that's a really important thing to know but to go back to the question I think when academics generate that referral to us it enables us to look at the matter dispassionately. Okay. You know, um, we're not feeling emotionally hurt by, you know, like an academic can, because they worked with this student for the whole semester or the whole term, and then they might have cheated, and that can be a hurtful experience, and we should acknowledge that. Yes. You know, but the very fact of referring it to us means we can look at it dispassionately and without bias. Yes, and, and, and to a certain extent, the decision making then becomes somebody else's as well. That's right. And there's probably a little bit of, of freeing up when, when you do that, when you pass it over to somebody Definitely. who is expert. Definitely, you know, and the expertise, like academics are good at teaching, they're good at assessment, they're good at research, and they might be really good workers on certain committees which suit their interests in the yes. university but they're not necessarily good at detecting contract cheating or any other form of cheating necessarily. Like plagiarism might be a more natural one for some disciplines. Yes. You know, but contract cheating is a distinct thing from plagiarism. And incidentally, in my view, plagiarism is not a serious academic breach. Contract cheating rose in large part because of a technological ability to detect plagiarism easily. And so in my view and my experience, students who are genuinely interested in cheating aren't engaged in plagiarism. I think plagiarism is fundamentally an educational issue and it should be taught as education rather than a kind of 
punitive approach to dealing with it. And that's interesting because I suppose a lot of what we have focused on over these workshops naturally has been on the misconduct end of the academic integrity conversation. The more severe breach, Absolutely. Yes. But I suppose in Nane, and I'm sure that the same in, in UNSW, we, we take this, this very holistic approach to academic misconduct and, and we look at you know, the role of education and the role of prevention and so on. Do you think that that sits mostly within that space of plagiarism or do you think there's also a potential role for education and prevention in the space of contract cheating and, and the kind of the technology driven forms of academic misconduct? Oh, I'd definitely say there's there's scope there and, and a space for people to come into it and, you know, kind of run with more positive messages. But I think that also students who engage in contract cheating fundamentally kind of don't think they're going to get caught and even a lot of our rhetoric as universities and across the global sector a lot of our rhetoric has really kind of said we can't detect it in the same way that people now think well probably rightly at this point don't think we can detect say ai written essays yes you know but we know now that we can detect contract cheating but we need to convince students of that as well so we want to, again, you, when you can put it in a positive light and sort of say, this is a big problem for this, this and this reason. You know, contract cheating providers are a, again, look, it's illegal here to provide yes. those services. So by definition there, it's a criminal enterprise as it is in Australia. But there's also some deeply sketchy elements in, you know, actors, if you will. Absolutely. And I think you said something really interesting in the middle of that was where you talk, talked about AI and we can't at the moment detect this. Mm. But I, th I think that's, that's, that, that's, I suppose, interesting in light of a comment you made yesterday about the fact that that digital ink is, is permanent. Yeah. So it could be that, you know, there are issues arising now that potentially we can't detect now, but actually in 10 years time, you might be able to detect. And That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of discussion on what the potential impacts of GDPR might be. Yes. As, as you say, like, um, a lot of our work is effectively data analysis. Absolutely. You know, and there's an idea that we cannot hold on to student data and we have to kind of throw it in a bin and never look at it again. But it's interesting, I asked the students the other day, um, the student group, I said, how long would you expect the university to hold on to information which confirms that you earned your degree? You know, that Jane Bloggs, on, of such and such a birth date earn her Bachelor of Arts in 2022 on this date and she did these courses and they answered they kind of took a second they went forever <laughs> I'd want them to hold on to that information forever yes and when we're talking about assurance of graduates the current inability or the current you know lower level of ability to detect contract cheating as you say, in 10 years, things will be different. Absolutely. And so we want to be equally assured in 10 years that that student met all the learning outcomes and is the person that uni the university has confirmed they are to the rest of society. So I think there's just as strong an argument to say that, you know, a student's trajectory through the university, of course, there's certain types of information or certain information, like whether a student um, got sick before an exam in their third year. Yes. That's irrelevant. 
you know, that's probably not relevant to um, assurance. Absolutely, yes. But some of the fundamental information about a student's progress through university is just as key to the, insure, uh, the assurance of their degree as their name and their birth date and what, what degree they got. Yeah, and I suppose the challenge with that is, is now creating systems that allow universities to keep the information that they need to keep, yeah. but also to, you know, dispose of the information that doesn't need to be disposed of. Yeah. And, and I suppose that, again, will feed into this, yeah. that, this piece around insurance, assurance in the, in the long term. Yeah, I think kind of IT systems are, are always, for all, all organisations, are work in progress. Yes. But, yeah, again, when universities are fairly traditional places, when I started at universities, virtually everyone handed in physical paper. Yes. And now virtually no one does that. Absolutely. You know, and it becomes embedded in, in policy that you can't do that. Yes. You know, where it's not appropriate. Um, so I think that starting to, we're only starting to kind of come to, come to grip with the massive amounts of data that are generated by universities. Absolutely. Both on the student side and say research side as well. How well do we secure that data? You know, they're all really important questions. And, and I think part of that is, is securing it within a, a global world because, you know, not only, I, I suppose, are, are, are universities more involved in a global world now, but actually contract cheating is a global issue. Um, and although, you know, we can put in legislation in place in Ireland and Australia, we, we can't close the door to it completely because it is a global issue. But one of the things that I think is lovely that we're starting to see and that, that's really developing is this, this global community around academic integrity. Yeah. And, and particularly with the likes of ICAI and ENAI and, and, and so on, there, there is these conversations happening and the sharing of information that's happening. And there's been a lot of it with you here yeah. this week. One of the things that struck me is, you know, we've learned a huge amount from you this week in Ireland. Has there been anything that you've learned that you bring back to your practice, do you think, or, or that Australia could learn from what's happening in Ireland? And it's okay if the answer is no. <laughs> it's, it's interesting, actually. I've got a really, I think, a really good picture of how things work over here. And so, for example, like not every uni in Australia is like mine in, in terms of how like the structures of academic misconduct is handled, etc. So I think there could be a lot to go home with and start thinking about, okay, what are the steps that other unions... Okay. Because I do get called upon from time to time for advice and stuff. And so I think, yeah, how would I maybe go about advising them? So I think it's really informed from that perspective. That's good. And I think one of the lovely things that is happening in Ireland is through the network. We're, we're by and large on the journey together. So there yeah. hasn't been a case of, you know, X university going off miles ahead of everybody else, mm. but actually we're all trying to support each other and work together to tackle the yeah. issue because it, it isn't an issue that any of us are going to be able to fix yeah. if we stay in our own little boxes and, and try and deal with it in our yeah. own four walls. I think, you know, in many ways, I think Ireland is ahead of us in that respect. I think we are kind of coagulating as a sector in Australia and there's various um, initiatives happening. You know, Texa, as you mentioned right up front, you know, Texa are kind of sponsoring this, um, uh, what amounts to a kind of online learning around the detection of contract cheating. But also, like I'm here this week delivering yes. something quite similar. And it's kind of, so it's already done. Absolutely, you know? yeah.
And, and before we finish up, I suppose, what I was thinking is if you could give one lesson or one takeaway or one step that you think everybody could take. Just one. Just one. <laughs> um, I think probably um, understanding the risk of not acting. Okay. I think that would be the major thing because I think so many other things flow from that. Once you understand the risk of contract cheating and, and its potential prevalence, again, there's not been any research in Ireland, but there has been in Australia, and I very, very much doubt Ireland is significantly different, different in yeah. terms of numbers. So I think that if we understand the reality of that and the accordant risk, I think a lot of other decisions become easier. Okay. That's really interesting. Thank you, Kane. It's you. been it's been a really interesting conversation, and and I know it, it's meant you coming in extra early on a busy week. To oh, have... I'm normally at work by eight, so <laughs> this was like a late start for me. Well, thank you. We really appreciate it, and, and thanks to to colleagues in QQI and the National Academic Integrity Network for organising this week's events. If you'd like to learn more about the National Academic Integrity Network, we have a dedicated area on the QQI website, which is qqi.ie, and there you can learn more. About about the main events and download resources such as the National Lexicon and Guidelines. Thank you for listening to this podcast. My name is Ashling Reist and I've been privileged to have been in conversation with Kane Murdoch today.